Good evening and welcome to the first meeting of the Henry Term <coughs> Seminar of the Middle East Center, examining political options following the Gaza conflict. My name is Eugene Rogan, and as director of the Middle East Center, it's a particular pleasure to see so many of you joining us tonight. Just warning of what we have in store for us for the remainder of this term. Does everybody have a space? There's rooms on the steps coming down. Okay. <coughs> on the 7th of October, 2023, following detailed plans at least two years in the making, Hamas disabled the perimeter fence that sealed off the Gaza Strip to launch a dawn surprise attack. An unconfirmed number of Hamas militiamen <coughs> overran Israeli towns, kibbutzes, and military bases, as well as an overnight music festival, killing an estimated 1,200 people and seizing some 240 hostages who were taken back to Gaza. Hamas achieved total surprise, reminiscent of the Egyptian attack on Israeli lines that had occurred on the 6th of October, 1973, exactly 50 days, 50 years and one day earlier. It took days for the Israeli army to respond and retake the towns and bases, killing some 1,500 Hamas fighters in the process. For Israel, the scale of the horror of the attack drew immediate comparisons to America on 9-11. If anything, the scale was far worse for Israel, with 1,500 killed or captured from a population of 7 million, <coughs> compared to 3,000 casualties of 9-11 from an American population in excess of 300 million. Everyone knew someone who was killed or wounded or captured. People felt betrayed by their government and by their army who failed to protect civilians from the worst single day's losses in the history of the state of Israel and the worst loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust. Most of all, they were horrified by what Hamas had done. The indiscriminate killing of men, women, and children, young and old, the horrors of rape and sexual violence and the seizure of civilians, taking them as hostages to share the dangers of the predictable Israeli retaliation in Gaza. Israel was plunged overnight into deep mourning, and is there still. Israel's friends and allies condemned the Hamas attack as terrorism. They affirmed Israel's right to self-defense, and in the case of the United States, agreed to provide the munitions to assist Israel in their stated aim of eradicating Hamas as a movement once and for all. The retaliation that followed soon eclipsed the horrors that Israel had suffered on 7 October. An unprecedented level of carpet bombing of the Gaza Strip, often with 2,000 pound bombs that the American authorities objected were not designed for use in densely populated areas. Not that that stopped America from resupplying those 2,000 pound bombs. This led immediately to alarming casualty figures in Gaza. The Wall Street Journal reported that Israel had dropped 29,000 bombs, munitions, and shells by mid-December 
2023. The United States dropped only 3,678 munitions in Iraq between 2004 and 2010 to give you an order of magnitude. I say only, and we would have said that what America had done to Iraq was an irresponsible and disproportionate level of destruction. But 3,678 shells and munitions dropped by the Americans, 29,000 by the Israelis on the Gaza Strip. Today, the health authorities in Gaza report nearly 24,000 Gazans killed by Israeli action, the majority of them women and children, a figure that American officials believe is actually understatement, given the numbers believed to still be buried under the rubble of the destroyed houses. There are many destroyed houses. The Financial Times estimates over 68% of the structures in North Gaza have been damaged or destroyed. To flee the bombardment, 85% of the residents of Gaza have been displaced from their homes and are suffering from exposure as they live in makeshift shelter. Their plight is compounded by the destruction of hospitals, the lack of medication, the loss of power, the loss of mobile connectivity and networks to the outside world, the loss even of access to clean water for drinking and washing, and the lack of food. The UN reports that two-thirds of Gazans are in immediate danger of starvation. That's happened in 100 days, 101 now. Not since the Second World War have we witnessed a territory emerge into such a deep humanitarian crisis at such speed. And of course, if Israel is deep in mourning for its losses of the 7th of October, then one must think about what 20 times the casualty figures means for a population smaller than one-third the size of Israel's in 101 days. So I would put to you that the Palestinians are deeply in mourning. And what has been accomplished by military means? Hamas has shattered Israeli security and Israeli citizens' confidence in the government and their army. If that was an objective, that was an accomplishment. Israel, by its response to attacks by Hamas, uh, has effectively turned Arab public opinion against Israel, scuttling any further initiatives for normalization, notably those between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Hamas has also demonstrated to a complacent international community that Palestinians are not reconciled to living under open-ended Israeli occupation or domination. The Palestine question cannot be overlooked, it must be addressed. Israel, for its part, has inflicted unprecedented damage on Hamas through its militia, to its arms stores, to its weapons, to its weapon-making capacity, its extensive network of underground tunnels. But its overall aim of the destruction of Hamas remains elusive, and the methods it is using come at too high a cost to civilians for most of the international community to continue to support Israel's campaign indefinitely. While Israel remains in deep mourning over its losses of 7 of October, the unresolved fate of over 100 hostages believed to be, remain in Hamas's hands, they face growing opposition in the streets of some of its closest allies as Palestinian casualties exceed 20 times Israel's losses, not counting the wounded, the amputees, and the <coughs> Just a death. Huge demonstrations protesting the human cost of the Gaza war have filled the streets of London, of Washington, of New York, of Paris, and many other cities, 
let alone across the Arab world. In the General Assembly, the United Nations has condemned Israel's response as disproportionate and called for an immediate ceasefire. Last week, Israel was forced to defend itself against a carefully crafted South African accusation of violations of the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide before the United Nations' highest tribunal, the International Court of Justice. Moreover, what began as an Israel, I'm sorry, an Israel-Gaza war risks regional escalation. Already in October, the Lebanese Hezbollah movement fired on northern Israel, provoking civilian flight and a buildup of Israeli troops, threatening the opening of a two-front war. Israel has struck targets in Beirut and Syria. America has struck targets in Iraq. And the Houthis have all but closed the Red Sea to international shipping. And as we saw last weekend, the US and the United Kingdom attacked Houthi installations in Yemen. So the escalation of this conflict is happening at a pace which is certainly a cause of concern for all who would like to see not just the end of war in Gaza, but to see the end of conflict in the region. As Israel faces increasing isolation in international public opinion and growing calls for a cessation of hostilities, it will eventually yield to a permanent ceasefire. This cannot be a never-ending war. It is a war that will end. Now, I confess that I did not believe that the war could endure this long. I did not think we would have 100 days of such intense violence. And when organizing <laughs> our seminar series for this term, I'd imagine we'd already be assessing a post-war reality in Gaza. I should note that some of my colleagues, Walter Armbrust in particular, were skeptical, and alas, I'm afraid he's been proven right. The war is still with us. But we think it important for us as scholars engaged in the study of the field of this region to consider the political landscape and the options before Israelis and Palestinians and the international community in the aftermath of this devastating war so that it might never be repeated. The Gaza war has raised real questions about the role of universities in deeply divisive conflicts. Leading American research universities have been devastated by the politics of the different sides in the Israel-Gaza war. The debates have spilled out of the classroom into the boardroom with accusations of genocide and of anti-Semitism, leveled at faculty and administrators alike. Donors and board members have pressured universities to clamp down on anti-Israel activism, threatening to withhold major gifts. Students were doxxed for their pro-Palestinian and or anti-Israeli activism. Columbia suspended two pro-Palestinian student organizations, Jewish Voices for Peace and Students for Justice in Palestine for all of the autumn semester of 2023. I don't actually know whether they've been allowed to resume their activities in Columbia or not. The presidents of Penn and Harvard were forced to resign following a heated congressional testimony in which they eluded questions about anti-Semitism on campus. Last week, a group of Harvard students filed a lawsuit against Harvard on grounds of anti-Semitism. One might argue, on the way to this evidence, that universities should steer clear of such deeply divisive political issues. We disagree. 
In our view, universities should be forums of debate and the exchange of divergent views. Not in any free-for-all sense, but done with intelligence, compassion, reason. We recognize that the current situation is deeply divisive, but that the situation requires each of us to make the effort to listen to each other, to better understand where the other is coming from. At times, we will need to agree to disagree. We recognize the need to preserve free speech and academic freedom, but we also believe deeply in our responsibility to preserve our community and the ties that bind us. So organize in support of the causes you believe in without naming or blaming or shaming. Demonstrate, but don't hate. Nothing we do in Oxford will impact the situation in Gaza ultimately, but we can do such damage to the integrity of this community in which we all have a stake, which we all hold so dear. We've seen that happening in universities like ours in America, and it's an experience none of us wish to repeat. Moreover, we believe that universities should be a forum for the incubation of new ideas and thinking outside the box to help address the world's problems, whether it's in science or medicine, but in politics and diplomacy too. We are neutral territory where parties from disputing countries can meet and talk behind closed doors in a way that they can't do on their own territory. For a number of years, St. Anthony's Middle East Center hosted a program in Sudanese studies that provided just such a neutral territory and brought all the disputing partners or parties from North and South Yemen to have the conversation in Oxford that they could not have in Sudan. I'm sorry, North and South Sudan, not North and South Yemen. To, um, to come to Oxford to have the conversation they could not have in Khartoum or in Juba. We believe that Oxford could play a similar role, given our strong ties to Palestinian and Israeli academics. In that spirit, we have convened this term's seminar to consider the possible outcomes in the aftermath of the war in Gaza. We've decided to shift the day in which we hold our seminars from its traditional Friday slot to Mondays so that it wouldn't clash with Shabbat and so that we might provide an open forum for Palestinians, Israelis, observant Jews across the world. We've chosen to privilege Palestinian and Israeli speakers, recognizing that the conflict will be resolved by Israelis and Palestinians, though of course with international support and perhaps a little bit of international pressure. And we've invited speakers who could address the range of possible outcomes following the current war. They're not all good outcomes, let's be clear. There could be a return to some form of the status quo, with Gaza and the West Bank under some form of Israeli control or occupation, a scenario many in the current Israeli government openly advocate. Or there could be uh, prospects of Palestinian statehood, a scenario that the Biden administration and many Arab states have called for in the old formula of a two-state solution. There remains on the table the alternative of a binational state in which Israelis and Palestinians would live together as citizens of an undivided landmass. Given the spread of Israeli settlements in the West Bank, 
and the seeming impossibility of framing a genuine, viable Palestinian state in the land that remains. Or indeed, there may be options that people have yet to put forward into public domain, but have been contemplated by the scholars and activists who make up our distinguished <coughs> list of speakers, which they will share with you over the coming weeks. So that's the agenda behind this term seminar series. In the remainder of this evening's opening session, I'm going to invite my colleagues to take to the podium to do something we didn't do all of last term, which is to speak to our community about an issue of common concern, but at a time where we hope that we'll be moving from analyzing something about which none of us has anything of particular value to say, which is to say the strategic conduct of a war, but instead to be talking about something that I feel each of us is on slightly more comfortable ground, which is talking about the politically imaginable coming out of what has been acts of horror that were unimaginable until the 7th of October. I would now like to turn to my colleague, Rehan, who will speak to you next. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eugene. Um, these are terrible times, and I don't know why I've decided to wear yellow. Um, I, you know, it's 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 really um, really quite difficult to describe the horrors of October seven, but also there are no words to describe the horrors unfolding um, in Gaza today. I know I don't have much time to discuss, you know, perhaps how did we get here, and I think that is something that maybe we can talk about in the Q&A. But I wanted to do, or what I wanted to do is discuss, um, you know, understanding alliances, uh, particularly when we look at the dynamics of alliances between Hamas and other actors. So there will be you know, important questions that we will discuss later um, in the Q&A, but at the moment I feel that perhaps to provide context, maybe we can try and understand um, alliances uh, and looking at Hamas's relations with other regional actors. So of course, you know, we all know that Hamas is a Sunni movement. Um, it is an Islamic resistance movement that emerged in the 1980s. It found its inspiration in the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood method of social and political actions. And although Hamas shared close relations with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the group is not identical to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Uh, here, local context play an important role uh, in understanding Hamas's motivations. So the main goals um, of the main goal of Hamas is the end of occupation and the liberation of Palestine, um, all of Palestine. And Hamas has not engaged in extraterritorial conflicts. It has primarily focused on the Palestinian cause. It is known for its refusal to recognize Israel. Um, this is enshrined in the group's charter. But over the years, the group has also hinted at accepting the pre-1967 borders. So in, 90, uh, in 2017, Hamas announced uh, its revised charter. Khalid Mish'al at a press conference in Doha stated that Hamas 
um, to quote him, considers the establishment of a full sovereign and independent Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital along the lines of the 4th of June 1967 with the return of the refugees and the displaced of their homes from which they were expelled to be a formula of national consensus. In the revised charter, um, it also tried to distinguish between Jews and Judaism and modern Zionism. Um, Hamas said its fight is not against Judaism or Jews. And the updated charter also removed some of anti-Semitic language of the 1998 and 1988. And of course, Israel rejected um, Hamas's statement. In response to the revised charter, Netanyahu um, announced that Hamas is attempting to deceive the world, but it will ultimately fail. So how do we understand Hamas's alliances or regional alliances? So both Sunni and Shia Islamists support the Palestinian struggle and are sympathetic to Hamas. So when we talk about Islamists, um, we are referring to Islamists that originated from the non-violent political trend like the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. We are also referring to hybrid Islamist groups like Hezbollah and the Sadrists in Iran. So when we you know, mention hybrid groups, um, they engage in legitimate political actions, including participating in elections while maintaining militant and armed options. Um, and when we say Islamist, we're really referring to both Sunni and Shia Islamist groups. So Sunni Islamist groups include the Muslim Brotherhood, they include the Salafi groups in the Arab world, including from Kuwait uh, to Jordan to Egypt to Morocco. And Shia Islamists, on the other hand, include groups such as the Houthis in Yemen, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, in Lebanon, and the Iranian Islamist government. So it is also interesting to note that jihadi Islamist groups you know, of Sunni orientation like Al-Qaeda and ISIS also call for the liberation of Al-Aqsa and the Palestinians. So they make the Palestinian cause as one of their main goals. However, support for Hamas differs when it comes to these jihadi groups. Um, to ISIS, for example, Hamas is not Islamic enough. Hamas's relations with Shia actors like Hezbollah and Iran are seen as problematic as ISIS declares the infidelity of Shia actors. Um, with the rise of ISIS in 2014, for example, ISIS sympathizers were also operating in Gaza. And in 2019, ISIS targeted Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad security officers. So Hamas then launched a campaign against ISIS in Gaza. Um, and conventional assumptions would assume that Shia-Sunni alliances do not seem plausible, especially after the invasion of Iraq, followed by the Iraqi civil war, uh, the Syrian civil war, and even the rise of ISIS in 2014. And these events you know, gave an impression of exacerbated Sunni-Shia tensions in the region. And of course, the American Eurocentric views tend to interpret events in the region as sectarian, uh, which is really problematic and simplistic. But more importantly, when it comes to the Palestinian question, Islamist groups and Muslim populations in general in various parts of the world, in, be it Sunni, be it Shia, have deep sympathy 
an affinity with the Palestinians. The view that Palestinians are an oppressed people and the view that the, that the liberation of Al-Aqsa is a legitimate cause unified most Islamists. And their political support, the Islamists, is extended to Hamas. The PA, or Palestinian Authority, is seen as authoritarian, corrupt, and impotent. And today, Shia Islamist groups are the most ardent and unrelentless supporters of Hamas and the Palestinian cause. However, tensions along Sunni Shia lines have at times affected relations between Shia Islamist actors and Hamas. Hamas came out in support of uh, the Syrian uprising in 2012. And despite the fact that the Syrian regime, Iran, and Israel were part of Hamas's orbit or support network, Hamas sided with the protesters. In February 2012, Khalid Mishal abandoned his long time uh, base in Damascus and moved to Qatar. Mm -hmm. And it was only in, 2000, no, in 2022, in October 2022, that Hamas resumed ties with Bashar al-Assad's regime, which is not really a Shia Islamist government, it is predicated upon secular ideals, but has been backed by Iran and Hezbollah, as well as Hashd al-Shaabi um, in Iran. There are a number of reasons to understand Hamas's, um, you know, the reasons for this change. One, although Hamas opposed the Syrian regime, its relations with Iran and Hezbollah were not severely affected. It was still part of Iran and Hezbollah's orbit of resistance. Second, despite the fact that Hamas enjoyed good relations with regular, uh, with Morsi's government in 2012, and in fact, Ismail Haniya was a regular visitor to Cairo during Morsi's um, brief tenure. Relations with Egypt deteriorated significantly under President Sisi. Sisi launched a campaign against the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist groups. And in 2014, Sisi closed down 99% of Hamas's tunnels. And third, Sunni Arab leaders' normalization with Israel is another contributing factor. Hamas needed solid allies. Shia actors were more reliable. And following October 7, Shia actors are vocal and some have taken military actions to support um, Hamas as well as the Palestinians in general. This is not only motivated by their sense of duty towards Palestinian liberation, but also to legitimize their own resistance and bolster their own credentials. And Hezbollah and Syria have their own grievances when it comes to Israel. Uh, and having said that, I think by all accounts, um, Hezbollah does not seem to want to escalate the conflict with Israel. Mm -hmm. And what I can see is that they're committed to low intensity war of attrition with Israel. And Iran and the Houthis, despite their geographic distance from Israel and Palestine, have made the issue a moral cause to be championed. Maria will be looking at Iran, but I'll, I'm hoping that I'll be able to look at the Houthis uh, to understand what's unfolding in the region. Um, so the Houthis are a rebel group um, from the north of Yemen who adhere to the Zaidi sect. The group fought against Yemen's longtime uh, ruler, Ali Abdullah Saleh, on the basis of economic neglect in the north and Saleh's relations with the United States. The founder of the Houthi movement, Hussein Badruddin al-Houthi, was extremely critical of US invasion in, uh, of Afghanistan and Iraq. And Saleh, you know, 
cooperated with the US in the American counterterrorism efforts in Yemen, which angered the Houthis, and Badr al-Din al-Houthi was killed by Saleh's army in September 2004, and his brother took over the leadership of the group and renamed the movement, the Houthi movement, to honor Hussein Badr al-Din al-Houthi. Saudi Arabia also played an important role. It entered the conflict in 2009 in support of Ali Abdullah Saleh and to protect its border, uh, but withdrew later. In September 2014, the Houthis successfully captured Yemen's capital, and both Saudis, um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE participated in the conflict to contain the Houthis, which led to the Yemen civil war. So the Houthis' support for the Palestinians is predicated upon several factors. One, their anti-American mm -hmm. and anti-Israeli position. They never fail to show that the Saudi bombing campaign uses American weapons. They never mm -hmm. fail to talk about American airstrikes in Yemen. Second, that sense of solidarity <coughs> with the Palestinians. Third, they are also quite pragmatic in some ways because they want to bolster and consolidate their position and power in Yemen. Their actions in the Red Sea have boosted their, their legitimacy. However, many Yemeni activists also highlight their disdain for the Houthis, as they have also engaged in war crimes against Yemenis during the civil war. And it must be noted that Hamas's relations with the Houthis are also quite limited. So we've looked at uh, Shia actors and their alliances with Hamas. Um, what I'm hoping to do is also, you know, perhaps try to understand, as I've mentioned earlier, I mean, uh, Hamas needed solid allies. Um, when it comes to Hamas's relationship with Sunni majority governments in the region, um, that varies. Unlike Iran, Hezbollah, or the Houthis, the Sunni uh, governments in, of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Bahrain have adverse relations with Hamas, and there are several reasons for their antagonistic behavior towards Hamas. One, these governments are anti-Islamist in general. They're anti-Shia Islamists, they're anti-Sunni Islamists, they're anti-Houthis, they're anti-Hezbollah, and largely anti-Iran. They also favor the Palestinian Authority over Hamas. Many of these, and third, many of these countries have shown arguably um, little interest in the Palestinian question over the years. Mm -hmm. They are pursuing their own economic and diplomatic interests in the region. If anything, the Palestinian question for them has not been a priority, and that is putting it mildly. Um, and these countries have also normalized relations with Israel, including the UAE in January 2021, Bahrain in September 2020, Morocco in December 2020, and Saudi Arabia was in negotiations to normalize until the events of October 7. So Jordan and Egypt normalized decades earlier. So these Sunni majority countries are seen as US allies. Many host US bases in the region. And these countries are now under a lot of pressure domestically. So you have regular protests. And regular protests are held in Jordan, in Morocco, and even in Bahrain. Uh, in a poll of Saudis conducted recently, 96% of Saudis believe that Arab countries should cut ties with Israel over its war on Gaza. And countries like Qatar and Turkey, on the other hand, have kept the Palestinian cause alive and relevant to a large extent. Turkey is also sympathetic to Hamas. But having said that, 
Turkey still maintains healthy economic relations with Israel despite its rhetorical fire. In 2022, Turkey's bilateral trade with Israel was worth 8.9 billion. Iran has actually called upon Turkey to end its economic ties with Israel in November. <coughs> Last year, Turkey ignored the call. Qatar, on the other hand, provides financial support for Hamas's government in Gaza, including providing aid and paying for the reconstruction of Gaza after successive Israeli military campaigns on the Strip. And other countries have also done the same when it comes to you know, uh, contributing to the reconstruction of Gaza. Um, the financial backing, and this is one thing uh, that has been debated as well in the media, the financial backing receives full support from the Israeli government. It goes through the Israeli government. Um, similarly, Qatar has also hosted the political leadership of Hamas in Doha after Hamas left Damascus in 2012. And this move by Qatar was at the request of the Obama administration to create an indirect channel of communication with Hamas. So hosting Hamas is also consistent with Qatar's efforts to project its soft power in the region as a go-to mediator in various conflicts, including uh, Russia and Ukraine. So last year, for example, Ukrainian uh, children were returned from Russia through Qatar's uh, Qatar mediation. So in conclusion, I'm sure there's so many questions, and I, I don't know whether we're going to be able to answer all the questions. We're probably going to have to stay back until 10. Easy. Um, so in conclusion, alliances in the region are not static. They are complex, and circumstances in the region influence how these alliances are shaped, maintained, and fostered. Ideological and religious considerations may play a role, but they cannot be the only factors we consider when we try to understand Hamas and its relations with other actors in the region. Thank you. So, as I 
example, take Tehran's Megan Palestine, uh, Palestine Square. It's uh, a historic site in terms of Iran's ties to Israel and Palestine. Under a different name, Kah, which means palace in Barsi, it hosted Israel's embassy before the 1979 revolution. After the revolution, the building in the vicinity of the square was handed over to Yasser Arafat and his team as a Palestinian embassy, and the square became um, known as Palestine. The backstory of a picture that I want to show you is that in 2015, uh, shortly after the uh, Iran nuclear deal, deal was signed, uh, some members of the Israeli government stated that with the Iran nuclear deal, they will feel more comfortable in uh, the next 25 years or so. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, reacted by saying, quote, inshallah, in 25 years, there will be no such thing as the Zionist regime, which is how Israel is um, uh, referred to in the Iranian Government, governmental parlor. It was then when Tehran City put up this electronic countdown billboard up. Um, unacceptable does not begin to describe it, but here it is. So uh, at the top you see an electronic countdown. At this point it says 8,382 days uh, remaining to the destruction of Israel. I don't know if the English is um, uh, legible, left before destruction of Israel, and every day uh, and would go uh, one down. So 25 days in years was put up after the Supreme Leader said uh, uh, Israel only has 25 years, and then they put up the spanner. It's still there. I searched there are like uh, updated videos of it. It's now at 6,000 something. Um, and sometimes the electricity is cut, it just dies, it comes back randomly at some number. Um, so yeah, that's one example for you. More relevant to the ongoing war on Gaza, uh, of course the government is using the uh, unspeakable situation in Gaza to further propagate its anti-Israeli stance. Um, one example is that they created this portal, I'll explain what this is, um, they randomly message citizens in Iran nonstop, uh, inviting them to join the campaign that translates roughly into I am your match, or I am the match you will meet, Harif Adman. Um, they claim that it now has 10 million plus subscribers and what it is is that sign up to go to Gaza to fight Israel uh, basically and, and the, the website was it's either down or inaccessible uh, from here because like two days ago I saw it it says like 10 million plus Iranians love to go fight Israel 10 million plus Iranians um, something that translated into love to see Israel destroyed, I think, uh, was the wording. It actually said it in Hebrew as well. Um, and uh, there were several pieces of evidence that showed that that number is just like concocted. It's not uh, a genuine number. If anything, Iranians have, um, like the mass, the grassroots, um, have been more um, um, like leaning towards Israel's side. There are some like disturbing and alarming signs of Islamophobia that is like being activated against uh, Palestinians. So, if anything, the Iranian population is uh, showing those traits. But this is what the government is doing. Um, have they actually sent anyone to Gaza? Of course not. Uh, it's all symbolic. They even say it. But I want to argue that they even haven't mustered all of their symbolic effort. Why? So while pro-Palestinian marches are um, 
erupting across the world in the hundreds of thousands. This is the kind of crowd that the Iranian government, which is actually quite experienced in uh, force mobilizing supporters of England mercenaries into pro-government demonstrations, this is what they produced. This is one example. This is another example. This is Tehran's Mehrabad airport. A group went there uh, as a, like a symbolic to show their will to go fight in Gaza symbolically. They even printed tickets. Um, the um, airport is actually uh, only for domestic flights, but that was closer <laughs> than the international Tehran airport. So that's where this population gathered uh, with government support. Actually, for their own more important purposes, in their own eyes, uh, the government is able to gather pretty impressive crowds, and they have done that over the years. So, do I have more pictures? No. Okay. <laughs> what is to be taken from this propaganda if not uh, its face value? <coughs> Fact of the matter is, Iran knows very well that it cannot survive direct confrontation with Israel, let alone annihilating it as the countdown billboard and many other pieces of propaganda promise. While Iran has played the role of a strongman enemy for Israel, uh, handing Israel the perfect opportunity, of course, with this uh, type of radical rhetoric, um, um, to treat it as such, uh, Iran does not even need Israel as a strongman enemy because they have the US for that, the great Satan. And so Israel, the, the animosity towards Israel, in my opinion, is mostly for domestic consumption, for the uh, like smallish, uh, loyal body uh, that they have. So what Iran has resorted to over the years in practice as the militarily, politically, and financially weaker state has been a route of plausible deniability. They have, and that is engaging with Israel, or actually mostly with the American forces in the Middle East, not even Israel, um, to preserve its regional uh, interest. So, I'm sorry, my contacts are giving me a hard time. I can barely see, I apologize. <laughs> Um, I'm not that nearsighted. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, given that Iran lacks the superpower abilities to um, um, preserve its interests, on the one hand, it needs to keep uh, military uh, challenges minimal and indirect enough um, to preserve an economic lifeline, not to cut itself completely out. On the other hand, uh, so uh, uh, on this, that first hand, they have to negotiate with the US every once in a while. They uh, made amends with uh, Saudis just before mm -hmm. uh, the 7th of October attack, as we all know. Um, <laughs> and on the other hand, Iran needs to counter forces of normalization to a certain degree as well, uh, whether it's with the West or with Israel. Uh, in the region, I mean not for Iran uh, itself in particular, because otherwise it would be completely isolated um, because of the radical foreign policy uh, that it pursues. So what we know as Iran proxies today uh, were created and supported not for the purpose of exporting the revolution. I have actually done historical work on this, uh, whatever that means, exporting the revolution, but for enacting such minimal engagement and pr preservation of interest in a quasi-rational way. Then what is the nature of Iran's relationship uh, with these militias in this life? Common wisdom, and especially the Israeli narrative, 
portrays the proxies as sort of an Iran empire across the Middle East. A good variety of militias with unshakable loyalty to their patron and a stable political relationship with it. I'd like to challenge this picture in three ways along uh, the lines of emphasizing that there's a gap between ideology and practice. So first, not all of these proxies have similarly close ties to Iran. Take Hezbollah, for instance. It has the most consistent and most congruent relationships with Iran in terms of its ideological goals. It was created in the image of Iran's IRGC. And it was created in a very fertile context. In fact, there were more than one Iran proxy-ish uh, or, or one, one Iran allied m uh, militias in Lebanon at the time. And Hezbollah was uh, uh, propped up in order to counter one of them. So basically, different people have different proxies. In, uh, uh, different people in Iran had different proxies in Iran. So Hezbollah, one of Hezbollah's functions was to, was to counter Amal's mm -hmm. influence to some degree. So that's how favorable to Iran was the um, formation of Hezbollah. So the similarity in ideological goals, as well as the structural um, um, isomorphism, so to speak, between Hezbollah and the IRGC, um, has enabled perhaps the most consistent ties uh, between Iran and Hezbollah among all uh, militias. But this is not the case with Houthis or Hamas, for instance. And that takes me to the second um, sort of challenge to uh, the prevalent understanding. And that is the relationship between Iran and either of these uh, proxies is not constant, as Rehan was uh, pointing out to. It's not stable over time. Um, so for instance, there's uh, Hamas's a break with Iran, Syria, Hezbollah over um, uh, the Syrian civil war. The, I think like beyond that, um, the uh, re Iran's reactions to the October 7th attacks and it's um, basically being left uh, uh, out of uh, the intel circle was it hit Iran pretty hard. It was um, it caused some discontent in the Iranian government. Iran was obviously caught by surprise. The second um, interesting instance came up with, uh, when the IRGC spokesperson came out and said the Hamas attack was part of the retaliation for Qasem Soleimani's killing back in 2020. Hamas immediately issued uh, a declaration and said, no, don't mix things up. Uh, we have uh, consistently said that this is um, our agenda, this is like against Israel, this is against occupation. So they're not really like uh, best friends uh, around uh, this attack at, at uh, the very least. And uh, the third and last point I'd like to make, and perhaps most importantly, is that these militias, after being either created or hugely supported by Iran, have found a life of their own, uh, independently of Iran. And each to a certain extent, again, not all of them uh, follow the same line. Um, Hash Shabi, for instance, um, has grown pretty independent of Iran because of how um, fractured and how like, kind of diverse it is on the ground itself. Some of you may have heard Ina Rudolph, Dr. Ina Rudolph, who was speaking about this last uh, year in this seminar, and she had amazing data showing actually, you know, people are 
explicitly saying how Iran is not their agenda, they are uh, following their own political uh, interest and ideology. More relevant perhaps to the events transpiring today is Iran's relationship with the Houthis. The big question on media and in everyone's mind is that how much of it is independent agentic action, how much of it is decided by Iran. My big final answer is I don't know, obviously. Um, Iran is, I think, genuine in its assertion that they do not want uh, the conflict escalated further because of the reason I mentioned in the beginning. They are well aware that they are not capable of providing <coughs> such a confrontation. On the other hand, uh, the Red Sea and Babu Mandab are perhaps far enough from Iran to be a, like a, a safe distance um, to just like not threaten Iran um, immediately. But again, it's not like Iran and the UK and other allies were directly participating in the uh, counterattacks against Houthis don't have the ability to be in more than one place at the same time. One of the first moves, military moves, that the US made after October 7th was to send a, an air, aircraft carrier to the Mediterranean explicitly with the purpose of deterring Iran. So um, I would err on the side of saying Iran would still not fully endorse um, this escalations that Houthis are effectively uh, imposing. And this could be seen as one of the examples of uh, the agentic uh, action of one of these so-called proxies of Iran. But regardless of our take on the Houthis or any of the uh, other interactions in the region, I think the complex and hearted relationship between Iran and these militias should be taken into account. Thank you so much. of the toothless response by Western governments on trial. 
Otherwise, the pressure exerted on Israel comes mainly from increasingly negative public opinion, which is manifested in huge protests. I want to talk briefly about two scenarios. The first scenario is complete Palestinian surrender. What happens when the bombs stop falling? There have been statements and speculation about some entity other than Hamas or Israel governing Gaza. Palestinian Authority, perhaps, or a multinational UN force. But any outside force would still have to articulate with Gaza society. So the continued presence of Hamas members would remain an issue, given that Israel's avowed goal in the campaign is to eliminate Hamas. An Israeli post-military strategy might consist of some sort of de-Hamasification, in which decisions are made about whether a given surviving person's ties to Hamas matter enough to prevent them from having any role in the reconstruction. But clearly, no fine-grained distinctions have been made, even between civilians and possible combatants, let alone between Palestinians who may have been affiliated with Hamas in nonviolent capacities. For example, teaching, running hospitals and clinics, or managing wastewater, as opposed to political roles, bearing arms, and committing or planning terrorist attacks. Much writing on Hamas sees it as a unified and disciplined entity in which non-combatant roles function as indoctrination and recruitment for the military and political wings of the organization. A few scholars have argued instead that Palestinian Islamist organizations had been deeply involved in social welfare long before they had articulated political and nationalist aspirations. I recommend Sarah Roy's book, Hamas and Civil Society in Gaza, Engaging the Islamist Social Sector. Roy, who did years of fieldwork in Gaza, views the political and militant side of Palestinian Islamism as having emerged most clearly during the First Intifada militant wing then receded during the Oslo era, but became dominant again during the Second Intifada. Once Hamas took over Gaza in 2007, it became the only game in town for anyone who wanted to ease the circumstances of the blockade. Roy claims there was a clear separation between Islamist workers in the healthcare, social services, and educational sectors, and the political and military elements of Hamas. It's worth quoting from a book, which was published in 2011. This is the quote. There can be no credible peace process with a Palestinian government that excludes the party elected by Palestinians to govern them. Hamas not only remains open to sharing power, it also has a history of nonviolent accommodation and political adaptation, ideological reflexivity and transformation, and political pragmatism that the West should welcome. The alternative portends disaster as it threatens to strengthen the more regressive elements within Hamas and radicalize Palestinians overall, further destabilizing a situation that is already fraught with unbearable tension. The alternative Roy mentions is exactly what happened. There are historical comparisons one might draw on denazification in Germany, debathification in American-occupied Iraq, or the illustration of Communist Party members in East European states after the Cold War. Debathification is possibly the most apt parallel. America did it by terminating the employment of all Iraqis who had been affiliated with Saddam Hussein's party. 
That had the dual effect of first sidelining large numbers of Iraqis who knew how to do the ordinary work of running rival institutions, and second, feeding resistance to the occupation, making it much more violent. I have no confidence that Israel has thought about such matters. The conduct of Israel's military campaign, not to be confused with the stated goal of eliminating Hamas, can be plotted on a spectrum running from brute revenge to ethnic cleansing. There's no evidence of fine-grained planning to reconstruct Gaza as a habitable place. Indeed, Gaza is already uninhabitable unless a massive relief campaign can be organized quickly. In the years of blockade, before the military onslaught, Gaza was sustained at a minimal level by something like 500 trucks a day bringing in food and goods. In January, according to the Washington Post, the daily average number of trucks entering Gaza each day is 126, yet the needs of Gaza's civilian population are immeasurably greater than before. There's little undamaged housing or infrastructure, inadequate fuel, food, and drinking water, and hardly any remaining health services. If the bombs stop falling, people will continue to die. At this point, it might take thousands of trucks a day just to stabilize Gaza. If either the destruction of Hamas or de-Hamasification are preconditions for this happening, then how can Israel do it? How are they going to sort through thousands of Palestinians who have connections to Hamas and decide who can work and who they think should be incarcerated or lustrated? Mind you, I'm not advocating that Israel should make such decisions, even if it could. I can't imagine Palestinians agreeing to it, and if they don't, any new arrangement will lack legitimacy and will fail. I don't think anyone else can do it on Israel's behalf. Israel just has to acknowledge that in any non-genocidal scenario, it will have to negotiate with Hamas, full stop. Plenty of pundits and academics have already said this, and it's reasonable. Even if one considers Hamas in the context of its worst actions, particularly the October 7th terrorist attack, its Israeli interlocutors will be no less racist than members of Hamas might be, and no less guilty of murdering innocent civilians, though the, their, the Israeli interlocutors will have done this on a vastly greater scale than their Hamas counterparts. Now let me turn to the second scenario, ethnic cleansing. I won't talk about the consequences of it, which would undoubtedly be horrific. I want to talk about what might keep it from happening. Stern public statements from officials and backstage diplomacy probably won't dissuade the Israeli government from trying to carry out genocide. I think the only sure way to prevent genocide is through meaningful international pressure in the form of sanctions. Sanctions against Israel are often articulated as the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign. Since we're speaking in a college, it's worth noting that in this country, BDS can't be implemented in colleges or universities because they're charities. British law prevents registered charities from adopting political positions. Nonetheless, advocating BDS, even if it can't be adopted, is a nonviolent DIY tactic to pressure not Israel, but rather our own governments to do what logically, morally, and even politically should be done. One might completely reject sanctions as a tool of statecraft. But if you do, it's still a fact that our governments don't. Israel uses sanctions as a tool of statecraft, not against the state, but against a population under its control. 
the European Union, and America against sanctions. So does the UK. You can go to the FCO website and download a file listing all the individuals and entities sanctioned by the UK. The document is single-spaced and in 11-point font and is 1,155 pages long. <laughs> One frequently voiced objection to sanctioning Israel is to claim that Israel is being singled out for doing what many other countries do, <coughs> hence advocating sanctions is anti-Semitic, because we're not advocating the same thing for everyone. I could not disagree more vehemently. We don't have to advocate sanctions against Iran, for example, because we already do. In fact, the UK sanctions list targets all the individuals, entities, and countries with which Israel sees itself in conflict. All of the senior Hamas figures are on the list. So are large numbers of Iranian individuals and entities specifically for their involvement in acts that threaten Israel. If there is exceptionalism, it is wildly skewed in Israel's favor, but not against it. In my opinion, no case can be made that the human rights abuses committed by Iran since 1979 are more egregious than the human rights abuses committed by Israel since 1967. I'm not naive. I know that human rights are only a pretext to sanction Iran, and that sanctions are actually an aspect of geopolitical alliances. But I reject geopolitical configurations that make Iran sanctionable and not Israel. Sanction them both, or sanction neither of them, but don't try to tell me that the human rights abuses of Iran are worse than those of Israel. We all know that our governments view sanctioning Israel as beyond the scope of the possible. There's Holocaust guilt, there are military contracts, mm -hmm. there are a host of other commercial and trade relations that our governments have no intention of disturbing. And there is the ambiguous and hypocritical, but very palpable discursive tradition of the West, including Israel and a de facto brotherhood of civilized societies, which are granted favorable trade and mobility conditions. Consequently, Israel's undeniably violent and illegal occupation carried out over many years is ignored. The bottom line is we know full well that our governments have no intention of being held accountable. One of the few means we have to bring our governments to account is protest. It's an uphill battle. On a single day in 2003, somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million people demonstrated in London against the impending invasion of Iraq on what many believed then and now know for certain were false pretenses. Globally, as many as 30 million people marched against the war that day. The protests were ignored. The number of Iraqi civilian deaths caused by the invasion and occupation is somewhere between 200,000 and 600,000, depending on whether you calculate deaths caused directly through violence or by excess mortality. Protests against Israel's genocidal trajectory have also been on a massive scale. Again, our governments are ignoring us. I do not wish to be interpreted as saying there's no value in protesting. People talk to each other at protests, they build alliances, and that helps to keep people mobilized. Contrary to Iraq and Gaza, at least thus far, activism does cause change, even if it takes time. One can feel depressed, point to the anti-Iraq protests and say that protests won't work for Gaza. Or one can take the position that protest doesn't work until suddenly it does, and keep marching. 
this is a slightly positive note and an otherwise somber presentation. I have made lots of notes on other aspects of the current situation, lots more on Egypt, for example, and a bit about the US as well. But we agreed to keep our presentations <coughs> short, and so I leave other issues for the Q&A. Thank you.